Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential. It's your weekly look at all things royal brought to you by Mail Plus. Now, obviously, the biggest talking point this week was about the princes and the press, a BBC documentary tracking the media's role in the fallout between the Duke and Duchess of Sussex and the rest of the royal family. For the latest, we're going to turn to the Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English, right now, who joins us via Skype. Hi, Rebecca. Hello, Joe. And now, Rebecca, the trouble started for this documentary before it was even on air, didn't it, with the royal households rather miffed that they didn't get early access to it? Absolutely. And it may be worth just going back even one step before that and pointing out that a lot of the people uh, I know that were interviewed for the programme did those interviews more than a year ago. So it's been a long time in the making. And actually, a lot has happened in the royal world, as anyone who watches this programme regularly will uh, will know between now and then. Um, but yes, they were very, very unhappy. And uh, it, it's there's really kind of two reasons for this. Is is firstly, they were only asked very recently if they wanted right to reply. And of course, the question was, what, what do we need right to reply for? And there are various things that come up in this documentary, most notably the suggestion by some people who've been interviewed that uh, royal aides were leaking information left, right and centre about Harry and Meghan possibly uh, with the uh, the blessing of the people that they work for, um, which is obviously a very, very serious allegation. Um, and the Palace did ask to see the documentary in full. Um, I have some sympathy with BBC there, you know, why should they have to show it in full? But what really annoyed them was that in order to... Um, to really to, to react to those very serious allegations, they were only given very broad brushstrokes of what was in it, not even told who was appearing or what claims they were making. So they feel very, very aggrieved by this. Uh, is it? Do the royal family normally have an expectation that they would see such documentaries beforehand from the BBC? I think if it was something that they were working with them on, like something regarding a Queen's Jubilee or a big kind of birthday celebration, then yes. But obviously, this is a work of journalism, and journalism journalists shouldn't be expected to have to kind of hand over everything they've got. But you are expected to have good journalistic practice and, and talk those you're writing with, or you know, in this case, broadcasting about, through in detail anything that might affect them. Um, and you know, the palaces feel, and I use the word palaces advisedly because although this is being driven by Kensington Palace by Prince William and his team, they are absolutely in lockstep with Buckingham Palace and Clarence House in how annoyed they are. Um, uh, they just feel that uh, proper journalistic practice wasn't followed in this case. Uh, you used the word annoyed there. What, what is the mood that, that you know of in the family now that the first part of the documentary has been out? As I said, it's not so much what's contained in it. it it's the practice that went into it. It's the way the BBC went about this. And I think this will, obviously, on the back of everything that happened over Martin Bashir, have serious ramifications for the BBC's relationship with the royal family for some time to come. Early ramification apparently is there's there's a Christmas carol concert that's been a, a bit of a casualty of the fallout. What, what can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, but it has, and this is quite a big move uh, by the, uh, the Royal Households. William and Kate were due to collaborate with the BBC on a charity carol concert at Westminster Abbey next month, and they've basically pulled it, and they've handed the opportunity to broadcast it over to ITV. It happened very suddenly at the, the end of last week, and I don't believe the ITV executives could uh, barely to begin their luck of this kind of plum piece of TV viewing that had been dumped in their laps. Um, I mean, I should just say, I mean, it's quite a bold move by Kensington Palace to do that because, of course, you know, they do need to work with national broadcasters um, and the BBC, obviously, many would say, is the, the pinnacle of that. But also, of course, it's worth pointing out that, you know, over the last week, I spent, you know, a week on tour with Charles and Camilla. Yesterday, I was with the Duchess of Cambridge at a brilliant school in North London talking about early years. And today... Um, after we've, after we've filmed this programme, Prince William will probably be giving one of his most moving and emotional speeches of his life about his work as a, an air ambulance pilot, uh, all of which, of course, is not getting half the column inches they would if it wasn't for this documentary. So I think the fact that the palace are willing to sacrifice that shows you how angry they are. Wow. Um, and then we've, you know, we've got part two next week. What, what do you expect to be the fallout from that, if any? Well, I suspect there will be quite a lot if what we're hearing is true. I mean, my, my very good media colleague on the Daily Mail, Paul Revoir, has been speaking to people and everyone says people are rather getting their knickers in a twist about the wrong programme and a far more interesting one, which will specifically cover the Harry and Meghan fallout period, is going to be next week. And certainly the people I speak to are, are, are braced to see and probably will decide how far they will go with any action they take against the BBC once they see what is broadcast next Monday. BBC, of course, are probably rubbing their hands with glee all this publicity. Such a roller coaster of emotions. Yet again, thank you very much, Rebecca English. Well, joining me on the panel this week are two right royal Richards. The Daily Mail's editor-at-large, Richard Kay, and the paper's diary editor, Richard Eden. Welcome to you both, Messrs. Kay and Eden. Richard Kay, let's start with you. BBC sort of lurching into yet another royal crisis. But do you think this one was avoidable? I think it was. I think it was entirely self-inflicted. I mean, the BBC announced that they were making, or it was announced that they were making this um, documentary about the activities of the press who report on the royals quite some time ago and it, there has been as time gone on an increasing sense of nervousness within the palace as to what the BBC might be up to but also within the BBC I believe because they weren't sure what the palace's reaction was going to be. They should have known of course but they chose to keep the whole project so secret so uh, so tight um, inevitably it increased the rumours and the speculation. Mm. Richard Eden, a story of yours popped up in the documentary I saw you tweeting about yesterday. Tell us what happened. It was hard not to get slightly outraged as I was, as <laughs> I I was watching I've it. I've never seen you outraged. I, I saw the words, you know, come up on screen. And then they had Meghan's great cheerleader, um, Omid Scobie, sort of analyse the story and give Meghan's view of it. But no one from the BBC contacted me. I mean, it, would have, it was very um, discourteous, I'd say. What the story was... was but also, it's just not very thorough, is it? Why, why would they not contact you about that? Good question. Mm. Um, no, one, one to address the BBC. I mean, mm. what the story was, but it was quite an important one because it was about the departure of um, Meghan's right-hand woman, her PA, and it was the first story that sort of gave a hint of problems um, about employment um, and people who worked for Meghan. And 
the story was correct. This um, PA had, had quit suddenly. And the, in the article, we had royal sources um, singing the praises of the, the woman who departed called Melissa. And this seemed to be what had outraged Meghan, that she felt, according to Omid Scobie, that why on earth are these sources praising um, the person who worked for me and, and not defending me sort yeah. of thing. Um, but it was, it was very um, strange, the whole thing. And, um, and then they had Meghan's, on the programme, then they had Meghan's lawyer just saying, oh, it's all untrue. Well, it wasn't untrue at all. It was this woman had left. That was what I reported. Mm. And Richard Kay, there were also, I saw your piece yesterday in the Daily Mail talking about some glaring errors. Well, it wasn't, yeah, there were many glaring errors in it, but I think Richard's touched on an important point. They afforded this courtesy of having Meghan's mouthpiece, her lawyer, interviewed on the programme, a courtesy not extended to other royal households, by all accounts. Um, and this woman, uh, the, the lawyer, was able to say things which were entirely unchallenged. She flatly denied the story that, that Richard was talking about just there, about that Meghan had been a bullying boss. Well, these bullying accusations are the centre of an internal palace inquiry. It hasn't reported yet. And she, the lawyer, was not there. Mm. She is in no position to say they are false and untrue. She should have said, in my view, I'm advised by my client that those, these claims are false and untrue. But she stated it as a fact. And the BBC uh, presenter did not go back and challenge her on that. Do you have a view on what the agenda has been here, considering that all, you know, all, the, all the kowtowing has been to the Sussex side, when real gatekeeping against the royal family? Well, I, I, if we're talking about the agenda of the BBC or, or the agenda of, of the those programmers. with the programme makers, yeah. well, I mean, they clearly wanted to make some mischief. Um, there's always been, the BBC have always had this sort of unhealthy fascination with the activities of the principally the tabloid press and the royal press in particular for years. They've, they've, they've written and, and carried sort of slightly disparaging uh, items ab about the activities of, of, of us. Um, and, and, and I guess that's part of it. And they also know it's an intriguing situation. It gets them, it, it gives them an opportunity to get into a sort of a tabloidy kind of story, if you like, i.e. the royal story. The, the BBC like to be very lofty and stand above it. And well, we wouldn't dirty our fingers with something like that. But this is a way for them to do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, as to quite what their point of it all is, I mean, I think that the whole slant of the programme was, was loaded. It was loaded against the royals and it were clearly it was loaded against the press. Yeah, did you, did you find that, Richard, that it's just this, you know, it's tabloid fodder dressed up as an, an analysis of the media? I think it was. I think it was. It came from a perspective of being hostile to the royal family and definitely hostile to the press. Um, I mean, Richard, in an article this week, highlighted a very interesting point, which was that this Omid Scobie character I just talked about, he was allowed to say... You love him, don't you? Well, he was, he, he was very dominant in, this, in the first yeah. part of this programme. And he was allowed to say that, oh, yes, I was the only mixed-race royal correspondent. And apparently he's half Scottish, half Persian. Well, on the same programme, they had the Sunday Times royal correspondent, who is Roy Anika, who is... Um, you know, his ethnic descent. Mm. And then there are others as well. And no one said to him, the presenter, wait a minute, sorry, can we check that? I mean, if you're a journalist, as the presenter claims to be, then you pick up on things, you ask people. What was that cheeky laugh? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> Richard's claim that the presenter is a journalist as he claims to be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm enjoying this, but Richard Kay, you 
talked also yesterday in this piece about the, these familial sort of like, you know, battling is, is something that isn't new, even though it was presented in this. In well, yeah, there's a kind of naivety. I mean, yeah. uh, Amal Rajan, who's the presenter of this program for the BBC, has sort of taken it as though the world started when he decided his film began, which is, he's looking at 2012 to 2018. Well, I can go back a little bit further than him. And certainly in the 1990s, the uh, counter briefing and briefing against individual members of the royal family was something which happened all the time. And it happened most famously, clearly in the, in the breakdown of the, the marriage between the prince and princess of Wales. And both sides were sort of lobbing grenades at each other through the prism of the press. It happened then, after Diana's death in the years when the Prince of Wales was trying to get the public to accept Camilla as a potential royal partner stroke bride. Um, and when people pushed back on that, then Charles's side would, would let slip bombshells about other members of the royal family. I mean, those are facts. And so there was that sort of briefing and counter briefing did go on. Mm, and I, I mean, I was not a royal reporter in the 90s and I remember that. Mm, <laughs> but, um, what did you make of the programme's presenter? Richard Eden. Amal Rajan, I thought he was, I thought it was very interesting because it seemed to be, to my eyes, a sort of vehicle that the BBC had created for their star presenter. So it was really all about him. I mean, he, he didn't seem to be particularly knowledgeable about the royals, but he was centre stage and he was wearing a selection of <laughs> of shirts. Um, I thought the most revealing thing on this programme... Did program, you want him to not wear a shirt? The most revealing thing on this programme were, were his shirts. You know, they, they really were. Did he have one as nice as this? He had them That's un- what I want to know. He had them unbuttoned, yeah. Yeah. you know, further than you. And and um, unlike yourself, he was showing off his hairy chest. <laughs> not um, today, not today. His yeah. chain, you know, and it, yeah. it really was a sort of, um, bit of a sort of chest-bearing exercise, I thought. So... But- I was going to say, but isn't, let me just interrupt, isn't there something critical about Amal Rajan? Because his position, where he comes from, I and mean, he is a, an ex-Fleet Street editor and a journalist, of course he is, very ambitious man and very highly regarded in the BBC, but someone with a bit of baggage where the royals come in because he, you know, he's a, a self-declared Republican. Mm. He's, he's written about how silly he thinks the whole institution is and absurd, I think he used it once. Uh, and I think that that's context and that's something which perhaps the BBC should have acknowledged or, and sh- or should have been placed more centrally, perhaps, in the mm. programme. Look, the BBC doesn't have, it doesn't have on match of the day, it doesn't cover football with someone who hates football, does it? I think it's ridiculous. If you're coming from that hostile perspective of, oh, right. I, I hate them, then, yeah. you know, that puts the programme in, in question, I would say, from the start, really. What, what do you think, Richard Kay? you have obviously been front row seat for the relationship between the palace and the BBC, seen at ebb and flow over the years, high points, low points. <laughs> How good or bad is it now? Well, I think things were um, pretty bad post the revelations about Martin Bashir and Panorama. Um, you know, the BBC are desperate to move on from that from that period. Oh, well, then this was a good move, then, wasn't but it? But this was not the best way to, to move on. <laughs> yeah. And crucially, uh, Prince William is not yet prepared to forgive them for what he considers they did in tricking them, uh, his mother, into giving that interview. And uh, I think his reaction to all this, his decision to move a, a very important program which was designated for the for BBC coverage to ITV is a demonstration of how bad things could get and they could get a lot worse. Watch this space. Uh, we're moving on now to our other main story this week. In September, a court ruled that the will of the late Duke of Edinburgh should remain hidden from public view for 90 years. Now, the Guardian newspaper is taking action against the Attorney General, arguing that the court's failure to properly consider whether the press should be there means that, case, that the case should be reheard. 
Michael L. Nash is an academic and an expert on the subject, and he gave us some context to this story. When he died, the Queen's solicitors were instructed with the Attorney General to go to the court and to seek for the sealing of the will in accordance with a um, hundred years of precedence by this time. Um, so if we say, why was it sealed? Well, this has now become the normal practice. That's really what we would say, I suppose. Um, whether it is the correct legal practice is another question. Now, the president of the family division at the moment, Sir Andrew McFarlane, um, was extremely open-handed and just about this, even-handed, I should say, because he began the judgment by saying, considering the sovereign's position, it is appropriate that there should be a special process as there are in other areas of the sovereign's life. I think we can accept that. Um, it's really on what basis I think and how far it goes. Um, now, the solicitors and the Attorney General had applied for the sealing of it to last for 125 years, but Sir Andrew said 90 years would be appropriate. Sir Andrew said that 90 years on, each royal will would be opened, and here's the crunch line, and examined by the monarch's private solicitor, the keeper of the royal archives, the attorney general, and by any personal representatives of the dead person who may still be available. They will decide whether the will may be made public at this stage. But Sir Andrew said some royal wills may never be published even in part, because the secrecy would remain. I don't think there's anything scandalous in Prince Philip's will. It's just a question of, this is a very sensitive time for the royal family, a very difficult time for the Queen. And I rather think this is what was being put forward in September when the case was heard in private. Surely, you know, we don't need to have to this by revealing things the Queen doesn't want revealed during her lifetime. I think that was an element of what was presented to Sir Andrew McFarlane. An interesting point that um, Sir Andrew added was that he was the custodian of 30 wills, none of which he had read, but they're all in a chest and he alone has the key. Again, even saying that makes you think, well, what are these 30 wills? Because there are more than 30 royals that have died since 1911. I can well imagine as things go on, that royal wills will not have to wait for 90 years. I think they may very well be opened perhaps up to 30 years, like other sensitive state documents. Let's bring my panel back in now. Richard Eden, we're used to the royal family putting up legal walls for all sorts of reasons to stop the likes of us peasants looking in. But um, 90 years, that's going to raise some eyebrows. <laughs> I do find this um, subject so fascinating because in the social diary, we often run stories about people's wills. They're often the subject of disputes and people are really interested to see 
you know, who, who's been left money, who hasn't, this sort of thing. Who's had secrets. Yeah, they, they really are yeah, yeah. interesting. And everyone in Britain, sometimes uh, in foreign countries, they're amazed by this. But in Britain, you know, all probate documents are, are publicly available, um, apart from the royal family. Um, so it, it is an interesting exception. Um, I mean, they are a special family. I'm not saying I'm completely against it. You know, there may be reasons. And I think it would be very unfair to suddenly change the rules because presumably they've written wills in the knowledge that they won't be made public. And if they thought they would be, I'm sure they might have uh, written them differently. But Richard Kay, Princess Diana's will <laughs> was open. It, it, it was. Is that a modern reasonable comparison? Well, I think the explanation at the time was she was no longer a, a member of the royal family at the time of her death. Her will, of course, was full of no surprises whatsoever. I mean, because she was a, a young woman um, and she'd written her will at a time when she did not expect to die. Mm. Um, Prince Philip, on the other hand, his will, he's, he's had many years to uh, polish it and, and work on it. Um, what what might the secrets be? I think mean, I think that's the curiosity factor here um, that he's got to hide. I mean, people have made all sorts of allegations about the Duke of Edinburgh over the years, none of which have ever been proved, and the idea that possibly the the, the last secrets of his life will be opened up in this will seems highly improbable to me. Um, I don't think he had a great fortune. Um, I don't think there's on that that score. There's that much to come out, but people are looking for pointers, perhaps about his private life that we don't know about. Mm. I must say, I would be interested to know how much um, money he had, Prince Philip, because of course he was said to be penniless when he married the Queen. Um, you know, all those years ago. So, it, you know, it would be interesting. But, I mean, you know, a penniless royal is a little bit different <laughs> to the rest of us. Where do we? Th it, what speculation is there about where his money and property has gone? Um, I mean, the fact that it's 90 years could be significant, perhaps. I mean, certainly that would cover the lifespan of anyone who may have been left anything in the will. Um, he was known for having lots of godchildren. Perhaps Richard might know the exact number. I, I don't. I don't. Dozens. It's, yeah. yeah, dozens. How many did you say? Uh, dozens. dozens. <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, they accumulate them like so, oh, that sounds exhausting. Women collect shoes. <laughs> I mean, godchildren yeah. i'm talking about yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly people like to um remember godchildren sometimes in wills so that could be another thing um but i think the ruling was it was all about the dignity of of the queen that was um and then i suppose also if prince philip's will was made public then you'd expect the queens to be as well for all the royal family so that i think that they're keen not to set a precedent mm. however richard Kay, we've talked recently on this program about with the gatekeeping of information about the Queen's health. And it, it does rather raise the question, well, what, what are you hiding with the things you're not telling us? Is, uh, is it yeah. the same here? I guess there is a bit. There, there is an assumption, therefore, they must have something to hide. Well, Prince Philip, what could he have had? I mean, he had no property. He never owned property. Um, he, I think he generally was the penniless royal when he married, as Richard said. Um, he would have accumulated things. He had a collection of art. He had a collection of rare books. But, you know, they've all been bequeathed to the royal family. Um, it, it's hard to see that there is a, you know, a, a sort of a ticking time bomb there. I think Richard's right. It's about protecting the dignity of the royal family. This is a comparatively new uh, rule. I mean, it only came in about 110 years ago. Um, so throughout the 19th and 18th centuries, royal wills were as open as, as yours and mine would be. Mm. Um, but I think the secrecy inevitably 
adds to the speculation. It does seem odd, you must admit, that something that was public in the 1800s is, is secret in the 2000s. Well, I mean, don't worry, we've only got 90 years, we'll all still be here. <laughs> we can find out then. Will we still be doing this programme? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Richard, before we go, I wanted to ask you about a story you have in the Daily Mail today about Charles and Diana's marriage. What's, what's that all about? I found this story really, really interesting. I mean, um, there, you, you always feel that everyone's had their say about Princess Diana over the years. But there was one royal protection officer who worked for um, Charles and Diana for, I think, about nine years, Sergeant Alan Peters. And he's never really spoken before, but he's given an interview. And the key thing he said is that Charles is very hard done by in the coverage, particularly in The Crown, because all the, the story has been that, you know, Charles betrayed Diana. He was um, back with Camilla very soon, leaving Diana in tears at the palace. But Alan Peter says, from what he knows himself, um, Diana was the first one to have an affair. Mm. And that was with a fellow protection officer, Barry Manneke. And Sergeant Alan Peters felt so strongly about this, he, he confronted his employer, Prince Charles, and told him about the affair and said that he would quit himself um, if it wasn't ended. He didn't feel he could carry on with his job. We're still talking about these people. It's incredible. And what becomes even more intriguing <laughs> yeah. is he was then moved to a different job. And sadly, a year later, he died. He was killed in a road accident. Oh my so and, and I should just point out that not long afterwards, Sergeant Alan Peters was also moved because he, his relationship with Diana broke down. Gosh, my life's boring. Just like by comparison, but that is all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. My thanks as ever to Rebecca English, Richard Kay, Michael L. Nash, and Richard Eden, and of course to you for watching. We will see you next time on Palace Confidential. Bye bye.